0: This is Indian Art History by MASH Podcast. Hello and welcome. This is Indian Art History and I am your host Ayushi. You're listening to episode 6. Today, we will be diving into modern art. Ooh, did I say modern? I meant Mauryan art. The slip was intentional because the events that unfold in 3rd century BCE in North India around Ashoka Maurya's time originated from the feelings of crisis in the systems of morality. But these were not exactly the modern times because Ashoka Maurya was not dismayed by the working of the system, but rather thought extensively to change the system. A lot of his writings are very very originals, these are his political writings, but we do not know how well they were received among the people of his nation. We will dive into a time when a change in policy resulted into a completely new form of art something that Indian subcontinent at large would witness for the very first time. This is the time of widespread patronage of public art propagating the ideals of dhamma, an ethical code of behavior. The art of this era heavily depended on symbology. It was a big leap because the three-dimensional sculptures reached a point of delicate perfection. This time is different in many aspects because here we witness the first ever royal and communal patronage of Buddhism, something we will cover in detail in the next few episodes. The other aspect which truly set the Mauryan Empire apart is that the Vedic Brahmanism was given little to no importance because there were many comparatively new schools of thought raised by Buddhists, Jainas, Shramans, Ajivikas that joined strong philosophical forces and started questioning the singular Vedic supremacy. In a way, these were modern times. The year is 322 BCE and Chandragupta Maurya, the prodigal student of philosopher Chanakya, has taken over the seat of Magad from the infamous King Nanda. Times are truly changing because in a span of 25 years, the whole of North India, Pakistan and Afghanistan come under the control of modern empire. Mauryan days are filled with planning wars and battles against the neighbouring and far-off states. The sole aim remains to conquer and expand. There are Greek, Hindu, Jain, Buddhist texts that speak of Mauryan empire in very high regard. It is clear that the Mauryan ambition continued to be strong through the three early generations after Chandragupta Maurya followed by his son Bindusara Maurya and the great Ashoka Maurya. Annexing by force and the violence caused by it has become the new normal. Fast forward to 261 BCE, the War of Kalinga, which is now Odisha, has just been won by Ashoka Maurya's army. Great acts of violence always leave behind sights as proof that somebody's being, body and mind was violated here. They leave behind objects displaced. These are not normal sights that the vision can adjust to. The aftermath sights of a war often leave behind stains of blood, broken body parts and trauma of many people, of those who lay dead and of those who witness it. Ashoka Maurya visits the aftermath site of Kalinga. The carnage of red blood wakes him up from his privilege. He notices the suffering and trauma of death and destruction caused to so many human beings. Simultaneously, he also becomes aware of his own control and power as a monarch. Something inside Ashoka Maurya changes and he becomes deeply philosophical. Through his introspection, he meets the teachings of Buddhism, a religion whose philosophy of non-violence and tolerance resolve his state of mind. He converts to Buddhism and starts investing heavily in making the presence of Buddhism felt throughout the state, not just physically but also intellectually. Through him, Buddhist monastic practices get a greater patronage, as a result of which he starts investing in the monumental architecture of institutions and structures embellished with beautiful relief and sculptural artwork. Soon, these structures, represented with peculiar and characteristic designs, were identified as symbols of power through their monumental presence. Ashoka Maurya himself starts formulating policies, expanding his thoughts beyond the principles of Buddhism. Since the Mauryan Kingdom covered the entire subcontinent, there were diverse religions and cultures thriving everywhere. There were Hellenistic societies that worked on the division of master and slave in the Northwest. Then there were Ajivikas, the Nastic or the heterodox school of thought. There were also Jainas, there were Hindus from the Gangetic Plains divided by the cruel Varna system. And then there were forest dwellers spread throughout. The Mauryan administration, in order to exert its hold on the vast empire, had made many of its functions centralized, with the endeavor to make the law and political order uniform, but at the same time identified the different schools of thoughts and religions that existed within his empire. For example, movement of people for trade was highly encouraged. This resulted in many artisans from non-Buddhist backgrounds contributing to the development of Buddhist ideology that we know of now. These sentiments strengthened alongside his internal debates on the conduct of non-violence and social harmony, which started appearing in the public projects he undertook as well. These public structures came through from the need of communicating his ideology with his diverse peoples. So he built structures of public art. He built major and minor rock edicts and he built freestanding pillars with inscriptions in Brahmi and other local languages solely for the purposes of communication. These were the early nudges that led to the changing economy as well. A new ideology was in the making, the behavioral code of Dhamma. One of the major rock edicts translated by Romila Dhapad reads something like this. When he had been consecrated 80 years, the beloved of the gods, the king Piyadasi conquered Kalinga. 150,000 people were deported, 100,000 were killed and many times that number perished. Afterwards, now that Kalinga was annexed, the beloved of the gods very earnestly, practiced Dhamma, desired Dhamma and taught Dhamma. On conquering Talinga, the beloved of the gods felt remorse. For when an independent country is conquered, the slaughter, death and deportation of the people is extremely grievous to the beloved of the gods and weighs heavily on his mind. What is even more deplorable to the beloved of the gods is that those who dwell there, whether brahmins, Shramans, or those of other sects or householders who show obedience to their superiors, obedience to their mother and father, obedience to their teachers and behave well and devotedly towards their friends, acquaintances, colleagues, slaves and servants, all suffer violence, murder and separation from their loved ones. Even those who are fortunate to have escaped and whose love is undiminished suffer from the misfortunes of their friends, acquaintances, colleagues, relatives. This participation of all men and women in suffering weighs heavy on the mind of the beloved of the gods. This was written after the Kalinga War on Major Rock Edict 13, translated by Romila Thapar a set of ethical codes that defines the social behavior of one person with another. And how did the emperor decide to communicate the new policy to his polity? He inscribed rock edicts and pillars describing the details of dhamma. A number of these structures were installed throughout the empire in densely populated areas as well. Interestingly, the intent to communicate this with different kinds of people was so strong that he got many of them translated in the local languages. While dhamma by its definition was the universal law of righteousness, it recognized the cultural and ethnic diversity of people. Dhamma is a prakrit word that means dharma in Sanskrit. It propagated non-violence and tolerance towards others with the sole aim to reduce social conflict. These were somewhat related to the teachings of the Buddha. But Ashoka gave them a wider meaning, expanded and detailed the policies grounded in the cultural and economical needs of his empire. It came out as a response to intolerance towards cultural and religious differences. Basically, it said... Be considerate towards slaves and servants, respect teachers, be obedient to parents and be generous to your family and friends. It's all very familiar to our moral teaching classes, isn't it? It came as a response to include people divided on the basis of different religions, jatis, ethnicities and many other things that divide people generally there were smaller groups of inscriptions that were addressed directly to the nuns and monks of Buddhist sangha. These were basically declarations from the king who addressed himself as someone who has a lot of autonomy over what the religion is all about, for he did not allow dissent among the nuns and monks. While the larger number of inscriptions were meant for the public, which came in the form of major-minor rock edicts and pillars, These were public announcements of sorts, supposed to be read out to the people, the principles of Dhamma as a direct message from the king. Because of this, two things happened. 1. Dhamma was being propagated by the means of certain oral traditions that started during this time. And 2. These inscriptions were always accompanied by a unique set of icons and symbols which were widely used in Mauryan architecture and artifacts throughout and reappear in later periods as well. The most popular among the several pillars with such inscriptions is the Sarnath pillar, after attaining enlightenment in Gaya, Buddha delivered his first sermon in Sarnath. For those confused, Sarnath is in Uttar Pradesh. The pillar is called Lion Capital, the first public art installed for the benefit of the public by an emperor. Normally, we see pillars often supporting the ceiling in large and monumental structures, but this Lion Capital stands by itself. A capital in the language of architecture is the topmost section of a pillar. The pillar of Sarnath was a highly decorated and celebrated capital, for it declared the presence of the imperial king. At this moment, this pillar belongs to the Sarnath Archaeological Museum. This is the same lion capital which was adopted as the national emblem of the country. What is it that makes it so contemporary yet ancient at the same time? Let us start by identifying the main elements of the pillar. The pillar had five components to it. These components communicated symbolic imagery of the modern empire, which was inspired by all ancient religions of India. The inverted lotus with each distinct petal curved at the edges symbolizes purity and transcendence. Right above the lotus base is a circular drum on which sit four stylized lions, symbol of power and control. They sit with their heads pointed in the four cardinal directions. On the circular drum are four dharma chakras, the four wheels. Each wheel has 24 spokes, which in Buddhist iconography, denote the cyclical movement of time. It has a bull, a horse, an elephant, and a lion that follows the four chakras. Each animal is caught in the middle of an action, and take us back to the animal depictions from the prehistoric and Indus times, as the features of animals are inherently very Indian. These features of animal depictions have been inherently local to Indian subcontinent since time immemorial. The bull signifies strength. The elephant is the power of knowledge who removes all obstacles. These pillars are polished smooth and have inscriptions in Brahmi and Kharoshti. I quickly wanted to read out one of the inscriptions of a major rock edict 12 which reads... But the beloved of the gods does not consider gifts of honour to be as important as the essential advancement of all sects. Its basis is the control of one's own speech, so as not to extol one's own sect or disparage that of another on unsuitable occasions. On each occasion, one should honour the sect of another – For by doing so, one increases the influence of one's own sect and benefit that of the other. While by doing otherwise, one diminishes the influence of one's own sect and harms the other. Therefore, concord is to be commended so that men and women may hear one another's principles. This was Major Edict 12 translated by Romila Thapar. Monolithic pillars before were made of tree trunks. They were worshipped and considered as pious, associated with the cult of Indra. The tapering pole of the lion pillar represents a tree. These pillars were considered the meeting point of heaven and earth. But along came Ashoka and changed the whole function of these pillars, combining morality with administration. These were many such pillars with animal capitals erected everywhere. The bull and lion on the Rampurva pillar, which are now stationed at the Rashtrapati Bhavan in New Delhi, are very realistically carved. They are broken here and there, but the body of the sculptures are almost intact. The muscular bends of the body is just too good. The artist had a very observant eye. The tresses of the lion's hair are stylized, which make it look elegant to a degree of graceful perfection. Mauryans loved polishing their sculptures and pillars, so much so that we don't really find figures as polished during the later periods. The polish instantly identifies as an artistic statement of the royal Mauryan court. The cutting, carving, engraving, and polishing techniques were thriving because the royal court actively hired these crafts for the public art. Punch marked coins and uninscribed copper coins were quite in trend too. Megasthenes describes that the status of the artisans at that time depended on how much money they were making and whom they were serving. For example, Metal workers that made armors made more money, so they enjoyed higher respect, while metal workers who made household items enjoyed less of a status. I find Ashoka rather interesting. He did not allow dissent among nuns and monks in the monasteries, but widely propagated acceptance of other religions. Most of the inscriptions document his thoughts about Dhamma in a very clear communicative style. They declare his concerns and worries both as a human conscience and as a statesman. This gave way to one of the first Indian art movements led by a royal patronage. United by a community that at large believed in a similar ideology and a strong religious organization backed by royal money, led to a series of Buddhist monuments and public art. This marks an important step in human cognition and the state of their creative imagination and endeavors motivated by their faith. Here was a dynasty which belonged to the Shudra class, as specified in the Puranas. This fact alone was a tight slap in the face of Brahmans, Mauryan dynasty was a strong and powerful court that displayed and developed Buddhist iconography all around the state. They erected pieces of art communicating a universal code of conduct for everyone. There is more in the next episode. Stay tuned and thank you so much for listening.